Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. As we come to this final chapel service in this academic year, and as we also begin to look toward graduation with a number of these that were honored today graduating, uh, the Lord uh, directed my uh, heart to a passage that has been used greatly in my life over the years in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And so if you would, take your Bible and join me there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16 and going through verse 22, spiritual exercises to make us strong. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. The human body is a remarkable gift and creation of God, as Psalm 139 makes so very clear. But essential to health and well-being of this good gift from God, there are a number of important factors. Rest, diet, and the one I'm very interested in this morning, the issue of exercise. Uh, If you were to consult any textbook on anatomy, you would discover some very interesting things about uh, exercise and fitness. In fact, did you know that there are at least six different types of fitness that are essential to our having a healthy and fit body? Uh, We need strength fitness, endurance fitness, anaerobic fitness, speed fitness, Uh, orthostatic fitness, which is the ability to stand upright, and perhaps our favorite of all, relaxation fitness. No, the body, like any organism, must be used or it will lose both its structure and its function. In fact, we often say it playfully, uh, if you don't use it, you will lose it. But what is true about physical life is equally true about our spiritual life, our inner person, uh, our spiritual being. In fact, our spiritual being requires attention and and exercise if it's going to be healthy and if it's going to be productive. In other words, we must regularly engage in spiritual exercises. There are, are certain disciplines that we must adopt as our very own. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 22, Paul directs us to eight specific spiritual exercises that will make us strong both in the Lord, but also strong for the Lord. Now, it's very interesting. Uh, Each of these exercises is given in the form of a command. They're all in the imperative form. In other words, these are not things that God suggests, but these are things that God commands that we pursue if we're going to indeed be spiritually fit uh, and spiritually healthy. They're also all in the present tense, which means these are to be habits. 
Uh, these are to be things that we are continually and regularly exercising in in our daily spiritual life. It's also interesting to note, if you read the Greek text, that all the verbs stand last uh, in each command, which is an odd place for them to be located. Also, they're all preceded by an adverbial modifier that adds strength and gives a particular emphasis to that particular exercise. Verses 16 through 18 particularly address the inner life uh, of the believer. Uh, but verses 19 through 22 speak more of life within the church as we gather together corporately and as we function together as the body of Christ. And so inwardly and outwardly, uh, individually and corporately, Paul addresses exercises that are essential if we are going to be strong in the Lord. And so what I want to do is just take a few moments and walk us quickly through these eight exercises. Number one, the Bible commands us to rejoice consistently. Paul simply says there in verse 16, rejoice always. It's interesting, the subject of joy is mentioned more than two times in the letters of Paul. In fact, it dominates the book of Philippians where Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. When you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and verses 22 and 23, joy is that which immediately follows the first command or the first fruit, that being of love. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, the Bible teaches that there is no contradiction in rejoicing while at the same time experiencing sorrow. And of course, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10 reminds us that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, Paul says we are to rejoice when? Always. And the word always is also a favorite of Paul's in this particular letter, having used it uh, three other times prior to its use, or four other times prior to its use here. And, and the idea is that we're to rejoice uh, on every occasion. Or maybe better, we are to rejoice in every set of circumstances. Now, we need to make something very, very clear at this point. Uh, rejoicing in joy is not the same thing as happiness. Uh, you cannot have happiness in the midst of sorrow, but you can have joy in the midst of sorrow. Uh, yesterday, a number of us attended a funeral service for a man named Ernie Baker. Uh, Ernie Baker is the father-in-law of Jamie Dew, our college dean. He is the father of his wife, Tara Dew. And I want to say to you, if you were not able to be there, most of you would not have been there, you ought to watch that funeral service. It is one of the most encouraging, uh, God-honoring, Christ-honoring funeral services I think I have ever attended in my life. Now, was there sorrow? Yes. Uh, this man fought cancer valiantly for the last nine years of his life. This man was dearly, dearly loved by his wife and by his children and by his grandchildren. And he had a, a, a large number of friends that would testify to the great impact that he made upon their life. And so there was sorrow, but there was also rejoicing. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And for me to live, yes, is Christ, but to die is gain. Yes, in this life, I get Christ, but in the next life, I get more of Christ. Yes, even in the midst of death, 
there can be wonderful and great rejoicing. Furthermore, when you have a disposition that is continually rejoicing and continually experiencing joy, you'll be the type of person, especially this is so relevant in ministry, you'll be the type of person who will bless others and not curse others. You'll be an encouragement, not a a disappointment. When people see you coming, they won't try to run down the hall and hide in the nursery and trip over a deacon who already saw you coming and hid there first. They They won't be like that with you. No, rather when they see you coming, they will light up and they will brighten up because you always give them hope and encouragement because of the joy that you are experiencing in the Lord. So I want to challenge you as you move forward this summer and for some of you as you move from here into the ministry to which God has called you, work at exercising what I call your joy muscles. In fact, one theologian said, joy is the surest sign of the presence of God in our lives. So we need to rejoice consistently. Number two, we need to pray unceasingly. He says there in verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now, I believe there's an intimate connection between verse 16 and verse 17 because unceasing prayer will almost always produce a joyful heart. In fact, John Calvin said it is, quote, by prayer that we disburden our anxieties, as it were, into his bosom. Now, it is unfortunate that uh, this particular verse is prone uh, to misunderstanding. And as a result of that, it has too often become a source of discouragement rather than encouragement. I mean, is Paul really saying that we are to be praying 24-7? I mean, Paul, that is obviously and self-evidently impossible. And of course, it is impossible, which means that is not what Paul is saying. No, what Paul is saying is that prayer in your life should be constant. Prayer in your life should be consistent. A prayer in your life and my life should be a regular habit, a, a close companion. It is just something that we naturally and regularly do. I'm very grateful that here at Southeastern in the last couple of years, we've come to recognize that if we're going to be a great commission seminary, we must also be a praying seminary. And I'm very grateful that God brought to Southeastern a number of years ago, Chuck Lawless, a wonderful prayer warrior in his own right, a man that loves the discipline and studies the discipline. And so now at this school, there's a prayer room up on my left in the balcony. And there's a prayer room up on my right in the balcony. And there's a prayer room now over in the library because we want you to understand that a very fervent, devoted, consistent life of prayer is absolutely essential if you and I are going to be spiritually strong. I think a good way to illustrate it is that prayer in the life of the believer ought to be like breathing. It ought to be like breathing. When we inhale, we are listening to the voice of God in his word illuminated by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But as we exhale, we speak back to the Lord, sharing our heart, telling him what is on our mind. No one, I believe, has addressed the urgency of prayer with greater clarity and passion than the man Andrew Murray. And Andrew Murray, in his classic book, The Ministry of Intercession, said this, quote, Christ actually meant prayer to be the great power by which his church should do its work. 
The neglect of prayer is the great reason the church has not greater power over the masses among unreached peoples among the nations. Let us then take time to seriously consider this need. Each Christless soul will go down to utter darkness, perishing from hunger, even though there is bread to spare. Untold millions of souls are dying without the knowledge of Christ. And Christians all around us are living a sickly, feeble, and fruitless spiritual life. Surely, there is a need for prayer, nothing but prayer to God for help will avail. And brothers and sisters, I am convinced both from what the Bible teaches and in my own life that prayer will be perhaps the hardest spiritual exercise and discipline that you will engage. You say, why? I, I don't know all the reasons, but perhaps it's because we fail to appreciate or understand what awesome power is there and what a great privilege it is to have our Heavenly Father available to talk to at any moment and at any time. Andrew Murray, I believe, got it right when he said, throughout Scripture, in the life of every saint, of God's own Son, and throughout the history of God's church, God is, first of all, a prayer-hearing God. If God is a prayer-hearing God, then you and I should always be praying unceasingly. Number three, the Bible challenges us to give thanks comprehensively. Look at what he says there in verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why, Paul? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Giving thanks in all things is a component of prayer. Giving thanks in everything also is clearly one of the most difficult commands to obey in the Word of God. And yet, if we only read that phrase and stop, we do not get the full import of what Paul is trying to say. So go back with me again. Pray without ceasing, yes. As an aspect of praying without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, notice what he says there. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now notice, he, he, we are not to give, we, we're to give thanks in, in all things, but it doesn't say we're to give thanks for all things. One more time. We are to give thanks in all things, but we're not to give thanks for all things. Give thanks in all things, I believe, calls to aid. The wonderful promise of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 where the Bible says God causes all things to work for good to those who love him. It doesn't say that all things are good, but it does say that our great God causes all things to work for good. Again, I love the way Calvin put it, quote, For what is better or more suitable for helping us? Than that we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that happens to us. One more time. For what is better or more suitable for helping us than when we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that happens to us. 
for a lost person to say thank you for everything is foolish. For the child of God to say thank you for everything is faith. And such faith is almost always found in our prayer closet and on our knees. Number four, the Bible says that we should desire the Spirit fervently. Look at what he says there in verse 19, just very simple and concise. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, the verse could be translated, the Spirit do not quench. The word quench means to to put out. Uh, If you have an NIV, it puts it this way. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Now, don't miss this. I believe there is an intimate connection between being joyful, always praying, continually giving thanks, and now not quenching the Spirit. Now, let's be very, very clear. The Bible teaches us that a believer cannot lose the Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So we cannot lose the Holy Spirit, but we can grieve Him, Ephesians 4, 30, and we can quench Him here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19. So it's very clear that in this verse, Paul is not talking about the person of the Spirit. He is talking about the work of the Spirit. And what he is saying is it is possible for you and me Even though the Spirit of God lives inside of us, it is possible for us to extinguish or stifle or restrain or stop His work and lose His power in our lives. Now, we need to understand the church has always struggled with its understanding of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We've always struggled with it, and unfortunately, too often, we have gravitated to extremes. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, even said in the early 1900s, quote, today, there are two extremes about spiritual gifts, cold indifference on the one hand or wild excess on the other. And so what we want to understand this morning is simply this, the Holy Spirit is a grace gift that God gave you at the moment of your salvation. And the Bible teaches now that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. Now think about it like this. Just think about it like this. God is God. And God could have chosen to live anywhere that he wants to live. And yet in some amazing, genuine, real, and authentic way, he now lives because he chose to. He now lives inside of you, and he now lives inside of me. And by the way, the Bible teaches that God is very, very jealous about that relationship that he has with you. In fact, James chapter four and verse five teaches that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously after us. And so because our God has a a good, positive, jealous love for us, we likewise should have a good, positive, jealous love for him. Number five, honor preaching properly. Honor preaching properly. Verse 20 says, just very simply, do not despise prophecies. Now, I think, again, there's a connection between what we read here in verse 20 and what we just read in verse 19. You see, one of the ways that we can quench the power of the Holy Spirit is by despising the preaching 
of the Word. In fact, B.H. Carroll, the founding president of Southwestern Seminary said, do not hold in contempt these utterances. Do not hold in contempt these utterances. Now, let me just address this very quickly uh, theologically. When we speak of the gift of prophecy and we speak of prophesying in the New Testament, we just need to acknowledge there is a degree of, of fuzziness uh, anyone that says, well, I know exactly, precisely, and specifically what Paul is talking about uh, when he speaks of the gift of prophecy, uh, you recognize right then you're talking to a fool. They do not know for sure what he is talking about. Now, I do believe humbly here, very humbly, that in the first century there was sometimes an, an element of predictability to their prophecies. There was a sense in which God uniquely and, and, and occasionally, not, not consistently, but uniquely and occasionally would give someone an insight through the gift of prophecy into what was going to happen in the future. So I do believe that was certainly the case. But today, when prophecy is being exercised within the body of Christ, almost always it is in the context of the proclamation of the Word of God. And yet, evidently in the first century, as in the 21st century, there was a lack of respect for the clear, unadulterated, positive proclamation of the Word of God. Why is that the case? Why was it in the first century, why is it in the 21st century that people sometimes despise the proclamation of the Word of God? Was it the fact that they were giving false prophecies? Maybe. Was it the fact that some of the preachers were unimpressive? Maybe. Uh, was it the fact that the gift simply wasn't spectacular enough for some people? Maybe. Was it that the people had stopped praying for their pastors? Maybe. We don't know for sure, but we do know this. Preaching of the Word of God is the power of God to salvation, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Preaching the Word of God convinces and convicts of sin, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 24. Preaching comes in the power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. And again, Calvin paints a very interesting picture of his own day that should probably resonate with our own when he says, and I quote, many feel disgusted with the very name of preaching as there are so many foolish and ignorant persons that from the pulpit blab out their worthless contrivances. And unfortunately, that's true. There's a lot of bad preaching out there both in content, which is the most important issue, but also in delivery. And yet Calvin goes on to say, quote, but the Lord declares in this place by the mouth of Paul that the course of doctrine ought not by any faults of mankind or by any rashness or ignorance or in fine by any abuse to be hindered from always being in a vigorous state in the church. Now, I'll tell you this, you'll never grow a great church without solid preaching of the Word of God. You may grow a crowd, you may grow a following, but in the long run, it is all hay, wood, and stubble. I would never go to a church, never go to a church 
that the preacher every week did not stand up and walk me through verse by verse and phrase by phrase and word by word, the word of God. I'd never stay in such a church. You're wasting your life. Such preaching is not worthy of the name. And yet we live in a day where people make fun of what is known as expository preaching. We live in a day where people are convinced that we need to have more storytellers than we have faithful expositors of the Word of God. But I will tell you this, I would challenge you above all things, be a faithful teacher and expositor of the Word. Listen, God has promised not to bless your eloquence, though you may be stellar and outstanding in that regard. God has promised to bless the faithful teaching of His Word. I'd rather have a pastor who stumbles and fumbles all over his grammar and his diction and everything else, but he teaches me the Word of God, than the most eloquent orator who in the final analysis is nothing more than a cotton candy preacher. Oh, it looks good. And it tastes good for a moment, but there is zero nutrition in cotton candy, and there is zero nutrition in cotton candy preaching. We need men that will faithfully teach the whole counsel of the Word of God, and we indeed honor prophecy joyfully. Number six, we need to live life wisely. Paul says in verse 21, test everything. Test everything. Again, B.H. Carroll, the great uh, president of Southwestern Seminary said, there are some spirits that are from God. There is an inspiration that comes not from God. There is devil inspiration. Calvin again added to this, keep the middle path. Examination or discrimination ought to precede rejection so it must also precede the reception of true and sound doctrine. And this is so good. Sometimes even good and pious teachers fail to hit the mark. So let me be very personal and I'll quickly move on. If what I say this morning, if what I say this morning is true to this book, you are obligated both to believe it and obey it. Not because of Danny Aiken but because I have been faithful to teach the infallible and the inerrant Word of God. On the other hand, though I be a seminary president, though I be ordained and licensed, though I have been preaching now for more than 40 years, if what I say is not true to this book, I should be rejected as a false teacher. Bottom line is not who's in the pulpit. Bottom line is what does the Word of God say? And let me tell you something. We've always struggled with this, but in this particular day and age, so many of your generation, so many are more geared toward having an ultimate authority of experience than they are Scripture. And listen to me, Scripture is not to be evaluated by your experience. Your experience is to be evaluated by the Word of God. Your experience can be wrong and deceived, but the Word of God will always give us truth. And therefore, we must indeed honor prophecy joyfully, but one of the ways we do that is by living life wisely. Number seven, keep the good zealously. Keep the good zealously. Look at what he says there again in verse 21. Test everything 
and hold fast to what is good. Now again, this command is clearly related to what he just wrote. Once we have put to the test all things, all right, we are now to continually hold fast that which is good. And of course, the idea of holding fast means to take possession of. It means to cling to very closely and, and never, ever, ever let it go. And so the immediate object, of course, is the discriminating observation and evaluation of the preaching of God's word, of prophetic utterances. But I do not think that Paul would restrict this particular command, hold what is good, hold fast to what is good, simply to preaching. In fact, I think Paul would say any good thing, any good thing that you receive from God, guard it, keep it, do not let it go. And then finally, in number eight, the Bible says we should abstain from evil completely. Test everything, yes. Hold fast to what is good, yes. And the corollary, verse 22, abstain then from every form of evil. Now that word abstain is a very strong word. Paul uses it back in chapter 4 and verse 3 where he tells us to abstain, to stay away from sexual immorality. Literally, he writes here, from every form of evil, abstain. Which means what? Evil comes in all sorts of sizes and shapes and forms. Evil is a very complex enemy. And while evil, listen to me now, while evil never changes its essence, it continually seeks new and enticing forms tailor-made by the evil one for each one of us. In other words, the evil one knows you from your shoe size to your hat size. And the evil one and his demons, and yes, I believe in Satan, and yes, I believe in demons, they size you up and they look for those occasions when they can catch you off guard and knock you out. So for you and me to withstand the perpetual assault and deception of the evil one requires perpetual readiness and preparation. Let me just say this as I move to close. What is especially attractive in terms of evil to you may not be an attractive form of evil to me. You see, where you're weak, I may be strong. And where you're strong, I may be weak. And let me say this to you, don't you ever think more highly of yourself than you ought, we all have weaknesses. We all have vulnerabilities. And you know what I've learned in life? Sometimes your greatest area of weakness can also be in your greatest area of strength. Where you are strongest, you are most susceptible to the temptations and the allurements of the evil one. Why? Because you're so good in that area. You're so strong in that area. And because you're good at it and strong at it, you are very susceptible to the deception of the evil one. A friend of mine a number of years ago told me that he had a list in his Bible. He didn't show it to me, but I, I had no reason to doubt it. He had a list in his Bible of 20 of his closest friends in seminary who no longer were in the ministry. They had all fallen to a particular form of evil and had disqualified themselves for leadership 
in the body of Christ. And he said, you know, Danny, one of the very interesting things about that list is all of those men were exceptionally gifted. All of those men were incredibly talented. And because they were gifted and they were talented, they trusted more in themselves than they did in Christ, and they fell. And they fell. So if God has blessed you with a wonderful intellect, don't get puffed up about it. First of all, God gave it to you. You didn't create it. He could have made you dumb as a brick like he did me. And so I don't, I don't go around thinking, well, yeah, I'm just really smarter. And then God made me work with Al Mohler for eight years. Good night. Then I thought I was Forrest Gump. So anyway, <clears throat> but he still doesn't know jack about sports, but that's not actually very helpful to your spiritual life. So anyway... No, God knows where I am strong and where I am weak. And I watch myself and I learn about myself. And what I know very truly and very clearly is this, where I do have areas of of strength and, and giftedness, I need to be careful. I need to be so careful. Because I can fool myself and deceive myself into thinking that I can do this all by myself. I can do this in my power and my strength. And that is the way of a fool. So God has given us spiritual exercises to make us strong, make us strong in the beginning, make us strong throughout the duration of our lives. But I promise you this, young brothers and sisters, when you get to be my age and as I grow older, it will become more and more and more important to you that God, by his grace, might keep you strong, to the end. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word that indeed gives us wisdom and insight and and exercises that if we engage them on a regular basis will make us spiritually strong in the Lord. Not spiritually strong in ourselves, but spiritually strong in you. And so Lord, as we bring this academic year to a close, it is my prayer that you would indeed make me and my brothers and sisters here strong in you. And that these eight things that we have looked at this morning will be regular patterns and habits of our lives. So that indeed, Lord, we will serve you well today, but Lord, that we will serve you well to the end. Lord, thank you again for how much you love us. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gift of the Bible. And thank you for the teaching and instruction that we find there. Lord, may we plant it deep within our hearts. And may we live it out daily and faithfully for your glory. We ask and pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, We hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for his glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.